to come and render the word of God unto us. And so would you, uh, as a Calvary Revival Church, uh, Christ Chosen Church family, help me welcome uh, to this sacred desk, Pastor Scott LaPierre. I love you so much, brother. All right. Thank you so much. Please. Well, does that sound okay? Need to adjust the sound? Yes, hear me okay? All right. Well, may I first wish you a happy anniversary. So thinking about what the Lord has done here for 22 years, I have to say I am very, very humbled and privileged to be part of Uh, Just kind of coming in here on the 22-year mark is just very humbling. I'm very thankful. It has been a wonderful weekend for us uh, coming out here from Washington at a great time in our lives where we really kind of needed a rest. It's been very hectic in Washington, and God knew some months back when this was planned, I suppose, that we needed this time. And so I just want to thank Bishop McLeod. I want to thank Marriage Center. I want to thank CRCC for all of their uh, hospitality and and the way the pastors have treated us and served us. It has just been fantastic. Now, this is my, my sixth message over the last few days, and so my throat, I'm starting to feel it a little bit, and I share that with you just to say I'm going to need your help a little bit. Keep me going, okay? So let me know if you guys are hearing the word out there. And <clears throat> that was my family up there. Oh, well, they took me down. That's fine. So seven children. My wonderful wife is there. And again, we're just very happy to be here with you this morning. If you want to take out that handout that you received when you came in, you can see on the back at the top, it says Family Worship Guide. Let me just ask you this. Is it important for families to be reading the word together? Yes, yes it is. And where does that responsibility largely fall? On the shoulders of fathers, fathers, husbands to be doing that. So gentlemen, this is more for you than your wives and your children. And so I hope this might give you some good times of reflection with your families. You talk about the sermon and, and read the word together and then just some prayer requests at the bottom if you want some direction regarding, regarding your prayers at the end. Let me open us in prayer, speaking of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the wonderful privilege of sharing your word with this church family. My desire this morning is in a sense that you would remove me and that your people would simply hear from you, that this would be a time that you would meet with them, and I ask that they don't hear from me. I pray that they don't see Jonah through the verses that we look at, but I pray that they see your son, Jesus Christ. I ask that he would be revealed to them I don't know people's familiarity here with types and shadows, but I ask that you would help me to explain them clearly and give everyone here a deeper appreciation for your son and for what he has done and how that is revealed throughout the Old Testament because you want us to know Christ, you want us to love him and to serve him. I think it is such a high calling to share your word in this capacity, Father, and I come before you just as a frail and a weak and a flawed man, and I ask that you would use me to do justice your holy scriptures, and that you would speak to your people. It is called your word because it is what you want to say to them, and my desire would be that they hear from you this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. I also serve, one of the other things that Bishop McLeod and I have uh, in common is a relationship with NCFIC, the National Center for Family Integrated Churches. Each year you might know that he travels up north a few hours to speak at the annual NCFIC conference. And I serve as a regional facilitator for NCFIC over Washington and Oregon in the Pacific Northwest. There was a conference call a few weeks ago, and one of the individuals in the call said, hey, I noticed that you're, you're going out to Carlton McLeod's church to put on a conference and speak there. And so the other individuals uh, on the phone kind of asked for the details, and I shared that. And then Scott Brown said, and I'm quoting, he said, you're going to love it. That's my favorite place to preach. <laughs> Now, Scott Brown speaks at a lot of different places, and so I just want to say this. You have got a lot to live up to this morning. (laughs) All right, the title of this message that I have for you is The Christ and Jonah. The Christ and Jonah. I want to begin with a question. Don't get this wrong. Who is the Old Testament primarily about? Don't say Abraham. Don't say David. Don't say Solomon. Don't say Moses. And don't say Jonah. The Old Testament is primarily about 
Christ, Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, a New Testament way of referring to the Old Testament. Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, another way to refer to the Old Testament, concerning me. So Jesus said that the law, the prophets, the Psalms, or the entire Old Testament is about him. My personal favorite, Hebrews 10, 7, Jesus said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. So how is the Old Testament about Jesus? Well, we know that there are hundreds of prophecies about his first coming, but what I'd like to talk to you about this morning is there are also what's known as types and shadows of him, types and shadows of Christ. Hebrews 10.1, the Old Testament was only a shadow of the good things to come, not the realities themselves. The realities are found in Christ. Colossians 2.16 and 17, a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, shadows are a perfect way to describe these types of Christ in the Old Testament, because what do shadows do? Just think about them. They give you an outline, or they give you a shape, or they give you an idea of what something looks like without completely what? Revealing it, without completely revealing it, just like Christ wasn't completely revealed where? In the Old Testament. You see a shadow, You also know that there must be something, or in this case, someone, that is casting it, right? In this case, that someone is Christ. And finally, when you look at a shadow, you never think it's the real thing. I mean, not to be overly simple with you, but when you see the shadow of a tree or a car, you never say there is a tree or a car, right? Well, similarly, shadows of Christ in the Old Testament find their substance in the language of Hebrews 10.1, or their reality in the language of Colossians 2.17, in Christ himself. Now, we're going to be looking at an example of a shadow in the Old Testament that looks forward to Christ. Uh, One of the things that I love about this church, which is a similarity with our church, is the children are present. So I just love looking out here and seeing the children. And so if you haven't uh, appreciated very much the wonderful gift it is to have children in the service. You only need to go look at a lot of the churches around you or across the country and see that all the kids get kicked out. And so I think it's a wonderful thing to see all the children. If they make a little noise while I'm talking, I'll just talk louder, okay? I want all the kids to do something for me. And if you're a parent, please help your child be able to do this. And you could do it too, if you'd like as a parent. I want you to have something to write with. And I want you to have a little bit of paper, just enough paper to be able to write down one name. So I want all the children in here just to repeat this. And let's say you're a child uh, that age can go up to, let's say, 40 or 50 if you want, or 60. (laughs) I want you to have something to write with, and I want you to be able to write down one name. I'm going to tell you about one of the most famous accounts in the Old Testament, one that many of you have probably been, have heard from the time you were very young, very familiar with it. And then I'm going to ask you a simple question at the end. So does everyone have a piece of paper and something to write with? A group of men set out on a boat, they left Jewish territory, and they headed for Gentile territory. While they were traveling, one of the men headed below to sleep. The ship encountered a huge storm that threatened to drown everyone on board. While the storm was taking place, almost unbelievably, the man who had went below remained sleeping. The other men on board were terrified, so they went to get that man's help. Soon after that, the storm was calmed, the lives of the men on board were spared, and as a result, all of the men on the ship came to greatly fear the Lord. Now, here's the question I have for you. What is the name of the individual who went below the ship to sleep? What is the name of the individual that went to the bottom of the ship to sleep? Raise your hand if you wrote Jonah. (laughs) raise your hand if you wrote Jesus raise your hand if you wrote Jesus and Jonah okay you guys cheated I said write one name (laughs) all right do you see how Jonah is a type or he is a shadow of Christ or do you see how what took place in Jonah 1 is looking forward to what was going to take place with Jesus and his disciples in the ship do me a favor and turn to the book of Jonah not the easiest to find toward the middle of the minor prophets. So you got Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. 
We'll be spending the rest of our message in the book of Jonah. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Pretty small, hard to find in the minor prophets. If you have to look at the table of contents, that's fine. Let's begin with lesson one. If you want to take out your handout, we're going to spend our time on the other side of it, opposite the family worship guide. Take a look with me at lesson one. Jesus and Jonah, part one, left Jewish territory for Gentile territory. Jesus and Jonah, part one, left Jewish territory for Gentile territory. We're going to read the verses in Jonah together, and then I am going to read the corresponding verses in the Gospel of Mark. Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city crowd against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The corresponding verse in Mark's gospel. Mark 4.35, on the same day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Jesus was in Capernaum. He's heading to the area of the Gadarenes, which is a Gentile territory. So he leaves Jewish territory, heads to Gentile territory. The same thing took place with Jonah when he set out across the sea, leaving Jewish territory to Gentile territory. Next part of lesson one, Jesus and Jonah part two experienced a terrible storm. Part two experienced a terrible storm. Jonah 1.4, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Corresponding verse in Mark's gospel. Mark 4.37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. In both accounts, you've got this terrible storm beating on these ships, basically throwing these ships around like they're, they're little toys. Huge waves are crashing over the sides. Leaves all the men aboard, terrified, except for two men. Two men. And that is Jesus and Jonah. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. They, part three, slept during the storm. They slept during the storm. Jonah 1, 5. Then the mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. Corresponding verse in Mark's gospel, Mark 4, 38. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Now to me, (laughs) this is the other miracle of the account, isn't it? These two men being sound asleep while this terrible storm is threatening to destroy their boats. Next part of lesson one, Jesus and Jonah part four were woken by soldiers. Jonah 1, 6, the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Corresponding verse in Mark's gospel, Mark 4, 38, they awoke Jesus And they said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They said the same thing to Jesus and Jonah, which is what? We're about to die. We're about to die. The sailors in both accounts, whether the fishermen or the disciples in the boat with Jesus or whether the sailors who were at sea with Jonah were experienced. These are individuals who were used to stormy seas. And so for them to reach this point of terror and urgency reveals that this was a very uncommon storm that they had never experienced anything like this before. And the reason I can tell you that is they were still alive, right? And, but they recognized that they were going to die. So they wake up Jesus and Jonah. Next part of lesson one. Jesus and Jonah, part five, calm the storm. Part five, calm the storm. Going to read a fairly large portion without stopping in Jonah one. Verse seven. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. Verse 12, And he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. 
Nevertheless, the men rode hard to land, but they could not. They tried not to have to throw them in, tried to find another way to be saved. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and they said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea. And then notice this. The sea ceased from its raging. The corresponding verse in Mark's gospel. Then he arose, Jesus did, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, typically, storms come to an end slowly or gradually over time, right? So you have to recognize the supernaturalness or miraculousness in both of these counts for the storms to be calmed so quickly. Next part of lesson one, Jesus and Jonah, part six, were with men who came to fear God. Jonah 1.16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Corresponding verse in Mark's gospel, the, Mark 4.41, the disciples, they feared exceedingly and they said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So in this account, do you see how Jonah's, this account or event with him, prefigures or looks forward to the account with Jesus and his disciples? Or do you see how Jonah serves as a shadow of Christ here? Now let's talk about the application. Let's talk about the application, and this brings us to lesson two. Having Jesus in the boat doesn't prevent the storms of life. Having Jesus in the boat doesn't prevent the storms of life. In Scripture, storms are pictures of the trials that we experience or that beat on us, beat on our lives, beat on our marriages, beat on our homes, beat on our families. For example, the parable of the two builders, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, or the storms came, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on what? The rock, the teachings of Christ. Now, like all of Jesus' parables, he's using something physical to illustrate something spiritual. And those storms pounding on that house, picture the the trials or tribulations that pound on us, and should we have our lives built on the rock, on Christ, then we can be assured that we will survive or that we will withstand. Here's something important to notice. I don't know if I'm the only one who tends to think this. If we're obedient, we won't suffer. If we do what's right, if we're good, we won't go through trials. If we just obey the Lord, bad things won't happen to us. The house that stood is the house that was obeying Jesus. And that house was still being pounded on by what? The disciples, similarly, in the account with them, why did they experience that storm when they went out across the sea? Because they were obeying Jesus. (laughs) He's the one who told them to go. They experienced the storms because they did what he said. Jesus actually sent them out into the storm. So having Jesus in the ship with us isn't going to stop what? Those storms. The disciples were experiencing the storm. I'm going to reread to you what they said, and you let me know if this captures the way you tend to feel when you're going through a storm. Mark 4.38, they woke Jesus, and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing. And this brings us to lesson three. The storms of life don't mean Jesus doesn't care. The storms of life don't mean Jesus doesn't care. Did you hear them criticize our Lord? They did. They criticized him. They criticized him. And when I was going over the message with my wife, I go over all my messages with my wife twice, sometimes three times. She was a tremendous helper to me. And that's one way that God has greatly blessed me with a godly woman woman who has such insight into the scriptures. And when I was talking to her about this message, she said, the disciples remind me of the way a wife would talk to her husband. We're going to die. Don't you even care? (laughs) Pull over and get some gas. Now, I have to tell you, 
When I read what the disciples said, I put myself there. I put myself there. And that is how I feel when I'm going through storms. Their words perfectly picture what is going on in my heart. Why don't you care, Lord? Why don't you care, Lord, about what is happening to me? How can you let this occur? I thought that you what? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. I thought if I just obeyed you, things like this weren't going to happen. Maybe you might even say, are you sleeping? Are you sleeping? Like the disciples said, do you even notice what's going on with me? Let me ask you this. Did the fact that Jesus was sleeping in the bottom of the boat mean that he didn't care or that he did not love his disciples? No, not at all. And similarly, when we're experiencing the storms of life, it is not a reflection of what? Jesus care for us. It is not a reflection of his love for us. So let's talk about what was acceptable for the disciples and what was unacceptable for them. And through that, we can also see by extension what is acceptable for us and it, what is unacceptable for us. It was acceptable for the, Lord, for the disciples to feel what? Fear. It was acceptable for them to be afraid. When you're suffering or going through a trial, it is acceptable for you to be afraid. Was it acceptable for them to ask the Lord for help? Go like this. It was acceptable. That is the thing to do when you're suffering or going through a storm. That is the correct response. Ask the Lord for help. It's acceptable for them and it's acceptable for us. Was it acceptable for them to rebuke the Lord? No. So you can be afraid. You can ask for help. You can pour out your heart. But you can't rebuke Christ. You can't criticize him like they did right here. They were wrong in their assessment of him. They were wrong when they looked and thought that this meant that he didn't love them. Why am I telling you that? Because we're wrong. We are also wrong. When we look to our Lord when we're suffering or going through trials and think that that means that he doesn't love us. In fact, let me ask you to think about something. I want you to consider for a moment what did and didn't wake up Jesus. What did and didn't wake up Jesus. Did the terrible storm wake him up? The rocking of the boat? Did the waves crashing over the side filling the ship wake him? Mark 4.37 says water was filling the boat. And I start thinking, man, wasn't he like sleeping in water by some point? What woke him was the cries of his disciples. What woke him was the cries for help from his disciples. It is very comforting to me to know that even if a violent storm does not wake Jesus, even waves crashing onto the side of the ship, I mean, it almost looks like our Lord can sleep through anything. What's the one thing he can't sleep through? Your cries. Your cries. He can't sleep through that. Let me ask you another question. Since Jesus calmed this storm... Does this mean that our Lord calms every storm that takes place in our lives? No, it does not. No, it does not. The only way to understand this account, and truly, if you've never heard this before, I would invite you to consider this for any times that you're reading through the Gospels. The only way to understand any of Jesus's miracles is to understand that most of what he did physically is a picture of what he wants to do for us spiritually. Let me say this one more time. Most of what Jesus did physically is a picture or type of what he wants to do for us spiritually. If you do not understand this, you will not understand the Gospels, you will not understand what Jesus wants to do and might not want to do in your life. For example, when Jesus healed blindness... Is this supposed to make us think that Jesus wants to heal every blind person? No. But what does he want to heal? Our spiritual blindness. It's not what he wants to do physically, but it's what he wants to do spiritually so that we can spiritually see. When Jesus heals deafness in the Gospels, do you read that and then think, oh, well, this is telling me that I can go tell my deaf friend who's a Christian that Jesus wants to heal his deafness? No, but he does want to heal 
our spiritual deafness so that we can, what, spiritually hear, understand spiritual truths when Jesus healed the paralytic. Is this supposed to make us think that he's going to heal every paralyzed person? No, but he does want to heal your spiritual lameness so that you can, what, walk with the Lord. Romans 6, 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life when Jesus raises Lazarus or someone else from the dead. Are we supposed to look at that and say, well, that means that when my loved one dies, Jesus wants to raise that person from the dead. Or the moment I die, Jesus wants to raise me from the dead. Right at that moment. No. But what does Jesus want to do? Spiritually give you eternal life. He's actually got something even better, greater for you than being raised from the dead physically. He wants to give you eternal life. If you look at Jesus' miracles this way, then you're going to understand what this is and is not about. This is not about him calming every physical storm. This is about Jesus calming the spiritual storms. If you look through this lens and you understand, you, you interpret Jesus' ministry, the physical accounts, spiritually, then you will understand that this is not about Jesus calming the physical storms. This is about him calming the spiritual storms. And this brings us to the next part of lesson four. Jesus calms the storms in our hearts. Lesson four, Jesus calms the storms in our hearts. And I'll tell you another reason that it's so important to understand this. If you don't understand what I'm sharing with you, especially if you're a new Christian, and you start going through something physically, and perhaps, and I don't mean this to sound offensive, you've been listening to prosperity teachers, health and wealth doctrine, you're going to be convinced that Jesus wants to heal every physical ailment of yours. But the problem is, Sometimes it's God's plan for that physical ailment or sickness or disease to what? Continue. Now, if you happen to think that Jesus wants to heal everything physically and that doesn't happen with you, well, then why not? Because you don't have the faith, apparently, or he doesn't love you as much as he loves those other people he heals, or this whole Christianity thing is just bogus. This just isn't true. This is why it is so important that you understand what I'm sharing with you, that what Jesus is primarily concerned about in your life is not physical, it is spiritual. Amen, amen. If you're experiencing a storm, this is what I would love to be able to say to you. I don't want to seem insensitive. I would love to be able to tell you, if you just call out to the Lord, he is going to calm it for you, just like he did with the disciples. The problem is then I'll be a liar because the disease isn't always cured. The relationship that's broken is not always fixed. The financial struggle doesn't always go away. And so you're asking, okay, well, this is great, Pastor Scott, but then what is the application? Why are these accounts revealed for us about Jesus calming a storm? He calms the storms that rage, not out there, in here. Jesus wants to calm the storms, not that are raging out there, but that are raging in here, in your heart. The physical calm that Jesus brought in the middle of that sea 2,000 years ago pictures the spiritual calm that he can bring in the middle of the storms that we face spiritually. The rest that he was able to give to those raging waves pictures the rest that he's able to give to the raging waves of our hearts. Listen to this. Isaiah 26.3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose life is free from all storms and trials. (laughs) I tricked you, didn't I? Isaiah 26.3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I heard it over there. Very good. We can have peace going through storms if we trust Jesus because we know that he is sovereign, because we know that he is in control. It might not look that way from our perspective, but from the throne room of God, everything 
is going according to plan. And I know sometimes people don't like to think about that. That's troublesome. Because then people say, well, why is God allowing this to happen? If I tell people God is sovereign over the trials or suffering that you're experiencing, people don't like that. That's concerning to them. What is more concerning is the alternative that he's not. The greatest, con- the greatest encouragement for you is to know that God is sovereign and in control over the storms and the trials that you're experiencing. You would have reason to be concerned if he wasn't. If he was sitting up there saying, oh, I see what's happening with Pastor Scott. I love him. It's just that I can't do anything about it. Oh, I, I wish this had first passed through the throne of God, but it didn't. So there's nothing that I can do about it. This is not going according to my will. That is the troublesome scenario. Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It does not say peace that surpasses understanding because our trials go away. Or because that storm in our lives is calmed. It says peace that surpasses understanding through Christ Jesus. Talking about the storm that's calmed in our hearts. Talking about the peace and the rest that Christ offers us inwardly, internally, while the raging is going on outside, physically and externally and outwardly. But you can have that inner peace through Christ. Now let's go back to Jonah. We're at verse 16. Take a look with me at verse 17. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, please, someone tell me, when I just read three days and three nights, something came to mind for you. (laughs) You look with me again and listen to these words, three days and three nights, and tell me you see Jesus there. Please tell me your minds go to Christ. The language is so strong It draws our minds to the New Testament where the same words are used of Christ's death and burial. And this is why Jonah, interestingly, of all the types and shadows in the Old Testament, Jonah is not just a type or shadow. He is also a what? They asked for a sign. And Jesus said, you're not getting one except the sign of Jonah. So in, in a wonderful, beautiful way, I mean, talk about a picture of Romans 8.28 or God working all things together for good. This is the truth. Hear me on this. When Jesus wanted to provide evidence of his death, burial, and resurrection, he used the rebellion of the worst prophet in the Old Testament. It was the rebellion of Jonah that was most dramatically going to look forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you say, well, wait a second, Pastor Scott, what if Jonah hadn't rebelled? We don't have to wonder about that. God is sovereign. (laughs) He took, I mean, talk about Romans 8.20. He takes the rebellion of this man who turns and goes the opposite direction of what God says and uses that for one of the most dramatic pictures and types of his son in the entire Old Testament. So 800 years, 800 years before Jesus was born, God had already shown through this man, Jonah, what was going to take place with his son. And I share that with you so you can appreciate the greatness and the beauty of God's word and understand what's in your lap right now. 700 years. Nobody disputes that. There's no atheist. There's no agnostic that disputes that the book of Jonah and Jonah's death, burial, and resurrection was written seven or 800 years prior to Christ's birth. And that's why when the, when the religious leaders came and they said, legitimize your ministry to us. Legitimize your messiahship to us. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He hung the legitimacy of his ministry on Jonah because it was that dramatic and clear and beautiful that if you could look at what took place with Jonah and not see Jesus through it, then you are wicked. You are wicked, unbelieving, because it is so clear, it is so evident. This brings us to lesson five. Jonah is a sign, not just a type or shadow, because he, part one, died and was buried for three days and three nights. He died and was buried three days and three nights. Take a look at Jonah 2 and tell me, where does this chapter, or when chapter 2 begins, where is Jonah? Take a look at Jonah 2. When this chapter begins, where is Jonah? 
He's in the fish. And from now on, you're also going to say he's buried, right? He's in the fish. He's buried. Here's what's interesting when you read this chapter. The burial language, and we don't have time to cover every detail, but I'll draw your attention to a few points, and you can look for some others on your own, perhaps as a family. The burial language is so strong in Jonah 2, you could literally look and think he's dead. If you didn't know Jonah 3 and 4, that he comes up out of the fish, you would have to read this chapter and conclude that this man is dead. That's how strong this burial language is. And then you say, well, why, does, why is it like that? <laughs> Why does Jonah talk like this? Why does, why does God write it this way that he sounds dead? Because it's establishing the typology between Jonah's burial and Jesus' burial. Look at verse 2. Jonah said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, what would you expect Jonah to say? Out of the belly of the... Oh, come on, people. You expect him to say, out of the belly of the fish, I cried. He says, I'm in Sheol. I am in the abode of the dead. This does not sound like he's in a fish. This sounds like he is in the grave. This does not sound like he's alive. This sounds like he is dead. Look at verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Look at this language. The earth... You've got mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. You would expect Jonah to say, the water closed behind me. The water closed behind me. It says the earth. This is not the language of burial in the ocean. This is the language of burial in the earth, in the ground. Next part of verse 6. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now, pit is an Old Testament synonym for Sheol or for Hades. And what did Jonah expect? He expected to be brought up or he expected to be what? Say it, resurrected. He expected to be resurrected. He was looking forward to his resurrection. Who else looked forward to his resurrection? Acts 2.27, Jesus said, You will not leave my soul in Hades or Sheol, where Jonah said he was, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay in the ground. Jesus expected to be resurrected, and Jonah prefigured that looking forward to his resurrection. Now let me ask you this. Was Jonah resurrected? Take a look at verse 10 for Jonah's resurrection. You guys see it there? The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. And this brings us to the next part of lesson five. Jonah is a sign because he, part two, was resurrected on the third day. Jonah is a sign because he, part two, was resurrected on the third day. And you get to see Jonah's resurrection right there in verse 10. If he's in there three days and three nights, and he comes out on that third day, his resurrection's on the third day, just like Christ's. What's interesting is when Jesus tells them that they have the sign of Jonah, his listeners in his day, and their minds go to the Jonah account, my suspicion is they were never able to look at that the same. Because they understood that when that fish vomited Jonah out, that was his resurrection. I'll tell you something interesting about this. Please follow me. There are two verses in the New Testament that state the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be raised on the third day. Let me say that one more time. Two verses in the New Testament, and I'll give them to you in a moment, state that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be raised on the third day. Luke 44, 46, Jesus said, it is written, or meaning it was prophesied in the Old Testament, that Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Jesus was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Luke 14, 46, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, both state that the Old Testament prophesied Jesus would be raised from the dead on the third day. And you're with me, you're with me, you're listening, and you're like, yes, yes, yes. And I say this to you, where? Where? I mean, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I mean, what is more significant in all of history than the resurrection of Christ? So I'm asking you, where is the prophecy in the Old Testament of Christ's resurrection? Here's why you might not know. Many of the prophecies in the Old Testament have a verse in the New Testament identifying them as a prophecy. 
Let me say that one more time. Many of the Old Testament prophecies have a New Testament verse identifying that Old Testament verse as a prophecy. For example, Matthew 1.23 quotes Isaiah 7.14 that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Matthew 2.6 quotes Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. John 13.18 quotes Psalm 41.9 that the Messiah was going to be betrayed by a close friend. But if we didn't have these New Testament verses identifying those Old Testament verses as prophecies, we probably would not know that they're prophecies. And the difficulty is there's no New Testament verse saying that this is the Old Testament verse that prophesied that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead on the third day. And so again, I come back to the same question with you. Since the New Testament in two places tells us that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be raised from the dead on the third day, where? Where? Jonah through Jonah. Possibly through Abraham. He traveled three days. The moment that Abraham received the decree to sacrifice his son, he reckoned Isaac is dead. He traveled for three days, and on the third day when he raised that knife and the angel stopped him, he figuratively, this is not my interpretation, but the language of Hebrews 11, received Isaac back from the dead. A resurrected son on the third day, prefiguring or foreshadowing the true and greater sacrifice when Abraham, of God with his son, that he did not expect Abraham to go through with Isaac, but that he would go through with Jesus. And so because Abraham had reckoned him as dead, when that angel stopped him, he looked at his son and he just said, I've gotten him back from the dead. I have gotten my son Isaac from the dead. There's also a verse in Hosea 6 too you can look at on your own. Don't turn there right now. We've got to keep going. That could also be a prophecy of Jesus being raised on the third day. But I can tell you this, those might be prophecies, but we have Jesus himself telling us that Jonah serves as a sign of his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, at this point, we have seen a lot of ways that Jonah looks forward to Jesus. There is one more beautiful way that I want to show you. Go ahead and look with me back at Jonah 1.12. Look with me back at Jonah 1.12. Jonah said, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. Jonah was willing to die so that these men might what? Live. I have to tell you, this might be the only selfless act of this man in the entire book. (laughs) Because if you're familiar with the rest of the book, you know that this is very uncharacteristic of him. In fact, and I confess I'm being a little speculative when I say this, I don't know any other reason he said it except that it was God's plan that he was going to prefigure Christ. Because everything else that Jonah did throughout the rest of the book looks so selfish. I mean, just think about this. When Jonah gets the command to go preach to the Ninevites so they might repent, he goes the other direction. If you're familiar with the wickedness of the Ninevites, you would first think that he didn't want to go there because he was terrified of them, that they would kill him. And you go, okay, I get it. That makes sense. I can understand why he's so terrified and prophets were persecuted in the Old Testament. So that could be why Jonah didn't want to go. You get to the end of the book and you learn the real reason that he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Do you want to know why? He knew God was merciful. He did not want to go to Nineveh because he knew the mercy of God, and that God would forgive those people that he what? Despised. So Jonah preaches, they repent, he goes up on a hill, and he says, take my life, I would rather die than see these people live, Lord. I mean, talk about a prophet. (laughs) I mean, this guy preaches a revival that makes Billy Graham look like an amateur. This city of hundreds of thousands of people repent. I mean, even the animals are wearing sackcloth and ashes and fasting. (laughs) And he says, take my life, Lord. Take my life because I cannot handle. And actually, he says like this. He says, I knew you'd forgive them. Do you remember Jonah saying that? I knew you would do this, Lord. I'm so mad at you about how gracious and merciful you are. So when people say this to you, the God of the Old Testament, he's so angry and hateful and evil. God didn't get criticized in the Old Testament for being hateful and angry. He got criticized for being too merciful. 
Read Psalm 73 when Asaph says, my feet had almost stumbled because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Read Habakkuk 1 where Habakkuk cries out to God and says, what is going on? Aren't you just? How can my people be going unpunished? You know, people look at the Amalekites, 1 Samuel 15, and they say, how could God, a loving God, wipe out these people? Do you know how many centuries he gave them to repent? Now, if God wanted to be merciful, he could have given the Amalekites a week. Maybe if he wants to be really merciful, a few months, maybe a year. He puts his people in the land of Egypt until the time when they can come out and, and judge the Amalekites or the Canaanites so that the time of their wickedness would come to fruition, he gave them centuries to repent. So don't tell me that the God of the Old Testament doesn't look merciful and gracious. That was the main criticism of him coming from the mouth of Jonah. Now, right here in verse 12, he looks very sacrificial and compassionate. And I'd ask you, when he says this, who does he look like? He looks like Jesus. Verse, lesson six, lesson six, part one. Jonah laid down his life so others wouldn't perish. Jonah laid down his life so others wouldn't perish. How are we doing on time? Okay, I'll just keep preaching and try to stop before my flight leaves tomorrow. (laughs) Well, you get lunch today after service. So you don't have to travel anywhere. It'll be right there when we're finished. I want you to notice two verses in Jonah. Look at verse 6 with me. The captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Verse 14. Verse 14, Jonah 1.14. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and they said, We pray, O Lord. Please do not let us perish for this man's life or for this man's sins. They didn't want to perish, so they woke Jonah to see how they could avoid perishing. And think for a moment about what Jonah said. They tried not to follow his advice. They kept rowing. They could not do it. He said, you have no choice. There is only one way for you to live. I must die. The only way for you to avoid perishing is for me to perish. The only way for you to live is for me to die. Or let me say it like this. The only way you can be saved is if I die. And they threw him overboard. Now, I I understand that these sailors can look pretty bad. (laughs) Who else doesn't want to perish? By a show of hands. We don't want to perish. Because of the great love of God, we don't have to. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see the similarity with Jesus? There is only one way that we can live. There is only one way that we can avoid perishing. There's only one way that we can be saved. That man the God-man, had to die. The only way we can avoid perishing was for the God-man to die. Let me tell you one important point about shadows, types and shadows. I'll make it real simple. They break down at some point. So sometimes in my church, I'll be talking about typology or shadows, and someone will say, well, I see right here it breaks down. It doesn't look like Jesus. And I'll say, you're right. Every type or every shadow breaks down at some point. If it didn't, it wouldn't be the type or shadow. It would be the reality. Does that make sense? Every type or shadow has to break down. If it had the substance or the reality, it would be Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to talk about how Jonah breaks down, how Jonah falls apart. Or let me say it like this. We're going to talk about how Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. We're going to talk about how Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. Matthew 12, 41 and Luke eleven thirty two. 32, Jesus said, A greater than Jonah is here referring to himself. Three ways Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. First, why were these sailors' lives in danger in this storm? Because of Jonah's sin. In verse 14, they said, please do not let us perish for this man's sin. 
So Jonah laid down his life, but he only laid down his life because he disobeyed God and these men were going to die as a result. And Jonah probably knew that he was going to die anyway too. He's going to end up in the water, so you might as well throw me there and at least these people can live. Why are our lives in danger? Because of our sin. Those men's lives were in danger because of Jonah's sin. Our lives are in danger because of our sin. And Jesus is the true and greater Jonah because he laid down his life not for his own sin, but for our sin. The second way that Jesus is the true and greater Jonah, let me ask you a question. As compassionate as Jonah's sacrifice looks, how much did it really help these men? And you say, well, Pastor Scott, it looks like it helped them a lot. They survived the storm and they lived. I give that to you, they lived. For how long? Let's say they got a few more years, decades. Hey, let's even say they got a few more centuries. In light of eternity, how much did they get? How much did Jonah really help these men? I would submit to you, not much. Because they all ended up dying later. Jesus is the true and greater Jonah because his sacrifice doesn't just save us physically for a few more years, but saves us eternally, spiritually for eternity. To see the, praise God, amen. To see the third way that Jesus is the true and greater Jonah, I need you to do something. I just want you to picture something with me. I want you to picture that ship out in the middle of the sea. I want you to picture this terrible storm that comes against it, all the dark thunderclouds and so forth, black clouds hovering over, and then the storm just threatening to destroy this boat, throwing it around in the water. And I want you to think of all the wrath. Think of all of the fury that is bound up in those clouds and in that storm as it rages against those sailors. Can you picture that? Picture the fury of the waves, the blackness, the darkness of it. Now look at Jonah's words in verse 12 one more time. He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea, that storm, will become calm for you. He said, if you do this, if I die for you, the fury against you will be calmed. If you throw me into the sea and I die for you, the raging storm that is against you will subside. All of the wrath that is bound up in all of those clouds will be satisfied. Can you see the beautiful type? And this brings us to lesson six, the last part. Jonah laid down his life so others wouldn't perish, but only Jesus calms the storm of God's wrath. Jonah laid down his life so others wouldn't perish, but only Jesus calms the storm of God's wrath. This is one of my favorite pictures of the gospel. And I want to just share something with you. This account, Jonah 1, and understand this about most accounts in the Old Testament, it is not primarily about Jonah. God did not record this so you would learn about a fish. God did not record this even so you would learn about the Ninevites or about this rebellious prophet going to them. This account is not primarily about Jonah. It is not primarily about the Ninevites. And I'll submit to you, no account in the Old Testament is about anything primarily other than Jesus. It is God's way of revealing his son to us. If you understand that, then the entire Old Testament will take on an entirely new beauty for you. If you understand what I'm saying and you start seeing your Savior through the pages of Scripture, and the reason this is so significant to me is I'll tell you, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I became a Christian in my early 20s. I started reading the Old Testament. I loved it. I saw these pictures and types or these shadows of Christ, and it really, I just started falling in love with my Savior. I started falling in love with Jesus as I saw how he was revealed through all of these tremendous types and shadows, and it grieves me. It terribly grieves me, if I can be candid with you, the number of Christians who don't know Christ through the Old Testament. 
the beautiful way that God wants to reveal his son to you. And everyone's like, look at the gospels. I love the gospels. I love the epistles. I love the revelation of Jesus Christ. But please love Christ in the Old Testament. Please look for the son of God there. It's over three-fourths of the Bible that God wants you to see his son in it. All of these beautiful pictures. And this is one of my favorites. Give me your attention. Make sure you understand this. The fury, the fury of that storm that you're picturing that was beating on that boat, it was terrible. But it pales in comparison to God's fury that rages against us because of our sin. The wrath of that storm, the blackness, the darkness of it, the fury, the anger that threatened to destroy those sailors is absolutely Nothing compared to the wrath of God that threatens to judge us. But here's what you need to know. Just like when Jonah was thrown into the sea and his death calmed the wrath of that storm, when Jesus is thrown into the sea of God's wrath, his death calms that wrath that is against us. Earlier, I talked about the peace that Jesus gives us, and the true and greater peace is described in Romans 5. Now, there's, and here's what I mean by that. It is a wonderful thing to go through a trial and have peace that Christ gives through that trial. As wonderful as that peace is, it pales in comparison to the true and greater peace you have been given that now exists between you and the God who is going to judge you. That peace that surpasses understanding, wonderful, thankful for it. But any day, I will take the peace that now exists between me and my God. I will take the peace that has allowed me to become his son. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Brethren, I wish I had the words to describe the peace which comes to a human heart when we learn that Jesus is cast into the sea of divine wrath on our account, our conscience accuses us no longer. Now God's judgment decides for us instead of against us. We look back on past sins with sorrow for the sin itself, but with no fear of any penalty to come. It is a blessed thing for a man to know that heaven and earth may shake, but he cannot be punished for his sin. Let me close by asking you to look one more time at verse 12. It says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. Jonah said this to the sailors in the ship with him, correct? Jonah said that to the sailors in the ship room. Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. Look at the words with me again and picture Jesus saying these words to you. Pick me up, throw me into the sea of God's wrath, then that sea will become calm for you. This account has always only been a shadow of something else. The true and greater reality takes place. Every time a sinner repents of his sin, and looks to Jesus in faith. Now, if you sit here today and you have never repented of your sins, you have never turned to Christ, then the sea of God's wrath is still what? Against you. It is still against you. That storm still rages against you. Do not leave here today without hearing this invitation from Christ, repenting of your sins, and looking to him in faith. He invites you to throw him into the wrath of God on your behalf. If you have any questions about anything that I have shared this morning, if you have any doubt in your mind about where you stand with God, I would consider it a great privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you. When the service concludes, I suspect most people will go that way. I'll remain up here. Perhaps Bishop O'Cloud will...